Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 28. This time we travel to Regency Britain, where a French master spy is about to attempt some fancy diplomatic footwork in a foreign office romance from 1894. And here's Paul to introduce the story. By October 1801, Britain and France have been at war for almost 10 years, but stalemate and war weariness demands a break in hostilities, which was promised in the shape of an accord later known as the Preliminaries of Amiens. Throughout the negotiations, the French delegation's main leverage lies in its army's occupation of Egypt, but at the 11th hour, news has come post-haste from Paris that Egypt has fallen to the British. But does Lord Hawkesbury's team also know? Young Alphonse Lacour makes it his personal mission to prevent any further messenger getting through before the accord is signed in France's favour. We've talked several times on the podcast about Conan Doyle's interest in Napoleon and the Napoleonic era, which had its roots in his family's connection to the Battle of Waterloo, and it was around the 75th anniversary of the battle in 1890 that Conan Doyle started to write on the topic, and uh, started with A Straggler of 15 in 1891, through to the novels Rodney Stone and Uncle Bernac in 1896. Uh, But he was also interested more broadly in what was happening in Britain uh, and in the Regency period. And in the summer-autumn of 1894, his mind had really turned to writing a play about the Regency period that he was working on with his brother-in-law, Willie Hornung, the creator of the, uh, the character Raffles. And the idea was for a four-act play to star Henry Irving and Ellen Terry set in the Regency period. And in September 1894, he wrote to his mother saying, I'm getting a lot of my Regency business into the play, which I shall afterwards use in a novel. Irving as a buck will be great. Now, that play didn't uh, materialise immediately, but the research for it found its way into the novel Rodney Stone, which was serialised in The Strand in 1896, and it subsequently reached the stage as The House of Temperley in 1909, um, almost bankrupting Conan Doyle in the process, uh, prompting him to write the Speckled Band play as as a way of recouping his losses. But it would seem likely that it was around the research for this Regency play that Conan Doyle hit upon the the fundamental idea for a foreign office romance. At the same time, that same period of time, Conan Doyle was working on what became the first of the series of uh, Brigadier Gerard stories, the Medal of Brigadier Gerard, which Conan Doyle previewed to audiences on his American lecture tour in October, November 1894. Uh, One of the people that Conan Doyle spoke to in America was Sam McClure, the owner of McClure's magazine, 
who shared Conan Doyle's fascination with Napoleon. And in fact, McClure's was saved from bankruptcy because it printed Ida Tarbell's uh, Life of Napoleon, a very popular series of articles which uh, essentially reinvigorated the fortunes of the magazine. And it was in McClure's that uh, a foreign office romance appeared in December 1894, although it had previously been syndicated in the American press uh, and probably first appeared in the Indianapolis News on the 10th of November 1894, uh, around a month after Conan Doyle had been in the city for, for for this lecture series. And the Brigadier Gerard series as a whole owes an awful lot to a foreign office romance, particularly the uh, framing narrative that's used in in this story. Yes, Conan Doyle starts a foreign office romance uh, with with the figure of Alphonse Lacour telling his story from the Café de Provence in Paris, uh, where he he is obviously presented as 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 a bit of an old bore hmm. who who sits in the cafe and this is in the the, the late eighteen forties early eighteen fifties um, telling the stories of, of of the glory days of his youth to to anyone who will listen and mm-hmm. presumably probably anyone will buy him a drink yes um, in return for his stories uh, and this he he'd used. A similar framing device, but a, a family version in in, the, in his novel Micah Clark, in 1889, where Micah Clark tells the story to his grandchildren. Um, but in foreign office romance, you know, this is a, a very different sort of social setting. As you've already said, Mark, the uh, the stories, uh, the Medal of Brigadier Gerard and a foreign office romance, are written very closely to one another. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting to speculate as to whether. Conan Doyle was thinking of using Alphonse Lacour as a series character and then came up with Brigadier Gerard at a similar time and was possibly totting up in his own mind, which one shall I use? Mm. Goes with Brigadier Gerard, as we know, and by the the second Brigadier Gerard story, uh, How the Brigadier Held the King, we have the Brigadier telling his stories from a Paris cafe to anyone who will listen. So he's used the framing device from the Lacour story into the Gerard and we hear no more about Alphonse Lacour. So yeah. it, it's interesting to speculate as to whether he was you know, comparing these characters and decided one was better than the other. And there are some sort of superficial similarities between Lacour's story and the Gerard stories as well. You get uh, this idea that uh, Lacour is still a- alive in the uh, during the Crimean War, mm. and um, Gerard, we know, is alive in the uh, at the time of the Crimean War in How the Brigadier road to Minsk. Um, you also have this idea we'll come on to later about uh, uh, Lacour's tall story of Napoleon's escape from Santa Lina, which mm. we'll, we'll get to. And also the, the little things like uh, um, Lacour does the whole phrase courage at <laughs> one point, and also this fight in the cab, which is something that uh, gets picked up almost, transplanted almost immediately into mm. a much more violent version in How the Brigadier's <laughs> Um, held the king Um, but you also get I think another thing which is this notion of the difference between the English and the French national characters Mm. and um, it's a it's a it's an odd thing on first reading that a foreign office romance should be uh, a Frenchman narrating the story to an Englishman but it makes sense if if part of the reason for doing that is to be able to draw out these differences in national character so you have, for example, a, a dig at the English weather very quickly. The climate of Monsieur's country is, it must be confessed, detestable. <clears throat> but you also get uh, the, the, the moment where Lacour hears that Egypt has fallen and he has seen crying next to his, mm. his master. <laughs> and uh, 
He says, you English misjudge us when you think that because we show emotions, which you conceal, that we are therefore of a weak and womanly nature. You cannot read your histories and believe that. And this is the kind of, uh, the kind of comparisons of Britain and France that you get repeatedly in the Gerard stories, and particularly in those first two Gerard tales that we covered in episode 15, I think it was. And it's, it's fascinating as well that, that at this particular period, we're talking mid-1890s, Franco-British relations were a bit rocky. Mm. They were going to get even worse throughout the 1890s and, and would culminate in the, the Fashoda incident um, in North Africa. Um, but but the Conan Doyle has chosen to make his hero a Frenchman, mm. uh, both in foreign office romance and then obviously with with Brigadier Gerard, um, and he was he, he was a, a long time Francophile, um, and a lot of this did come from his mother, who had been educated in 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 France um, in in Normandy at uh, Les Andelys, which we discussed in episode twenty two on the Lord of Chateau Noir. Mary Doyle brought her son up to 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 love French culture, and there's there's a a wonderful moment in uh, the Starkman Row letters where the, the the mother of the narrator in that, who is clearly based on Mary Doyle, <laughs> is 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 shown in the kitchen, um, carrying out her chores, but also reading um, the Revue de Deux Mondes, which which Mary Doyle did, and and brought up Arthur reading, and and he was he could read and speak French. Uh, so he, he could he could look at things from from both sides, mm. um, and it, it is interesting that he 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 writes these French characters Lacour and more importantly Gerard, mm. and they're taken up by the British public and and as well as this this kind of political attitude of the 1890s, there was also as as you've mentioned earlier the um, 75th anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. And this is a time when the, when the Napoleonic Wars was still a point of contention yes. uh, between the two nations. Uh, and a great number of, of, of British writers on Napoleon were still referring to him as Buonaparte rather yeah. than Bonaparte to <laughs> emphasize his Italian origins yeah. and, and how he's a fake as a great French hero. So in the midst of all this, Conan Doyle gets away with writing stories about French heroes. Yeah, yeah. So let's give a bit more historical context for this story, because it is rooted in uh, a specific historical incident. Britain and France have been at war for just under a decade, and the countries were both experiencing the difficulties of that prolonged period of conflict. In Britain, William Pitt had just fallen as prime minister, uh, replaced by Henry Addington, and with Addington came a bit more of a stronger mandate to seek uh, a temporary peace. I think many people thought it was only ever going to be temporary. And similarly, uh, Napoleon, who had become first consul in 1799, was also uh, trying to find a period of time where he could consolidate his own position. Uh, and the root of all of this is the French invasion of Egypt in 1798, which was important for a whole range of different reasons to both uh, the French and to the British. Yeah, French involvement in Egypt at this period is a particularly fascinating topic. Uh, it's often thought of as, as being Napoleon Bonaparte's project mm. um, because he led it and was was very enthusiastic about it to begin with. Um, but the origins of it really lie in in um, in the great French diplomat Charles uh, Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, <laughs> who was one of the, the great uh, political survivors of the of the revolutionary Napoleonic period, um, one of the great political operators. Mm. He was. He was Sort of like this period's version of, of Cardinal Richelieu, um, which is, 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 is quite fitting because he'd originally trained as a priest 
uh, and had at one point become Bishop of Autun, then retired from that um, and found a place in the uh, in the revolutionary political uh, mm. setup. By 1797, uh, he'd been appointed foreign minister. Uh, and it's in that year that the origins of the uh, the invasion of Egypt lie in a talk which um, Talleyrand gave to the uh, the Institute of France for the Sciences and the Arts on the 3rd of July, um, in which he, he extolled the advantages uh, to, to France gaining eastern colonies. Mm. Um, and he, he cast his BDI particularly at Egypt. And one of the main reasons for Egypt was... Um, to, to, to get one over on Britain, essentially. Mm. The French had a, a strong hold on the uh, the western end of the Mediterranean. Egypt would give them a strong hold on the eastern end. Um, and so he encouraged the idea of, of, of France going, taking over Egypt. And it was also uh, seen as a stepping stone to a possible French overland invasion of India in, mm. in, in the yes. future. And India was, is a primary concern yeah. uh, for, for Britain at this point. And then in February 1798, Napoleon takes up the, the mantle and decides that, uh, to push for this uh, in, invasion of Egypt along very much the same sort of lines that Talleyrand had been talking about almost a year previously. Yes, it's, it's uh, the, the, the two great minds coincide. Mm. And so the thing becomes a reality. And Napoleon leaves France on the 19th of May 1798 with, with, with a force to, to take over Egypt. But he also takes with him um, a group of, 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 of savants, of scholars, mm. uh, writers mm. and artists. And basically, this, this invasion of Egypt also sees the birth of Egyptology mm. um, alongside the, uh, the military expedition. And on, on the way to, um, to Egypt, uh, the, the, the French force also captured Malta yes. from the, the Knights of St. John so that to give them another strategic advantage so that if they take Egypt, they've then got the, they've got the western end of the Mediterranean, the middle of the Mediterranean, and the eastern end, which is really going to worry the British. Mm. And they got very lucky on the way to Egypt because I think they managed to evade the British Navy several times. Um, yes, <laughs> which was sent sent somewhat in the wrong direction, um, <laughs> and then uh, uh, and then eventually caught up with them. Yeah, uh, they made up for it later. later. Yeah. So the the, uh, the French land in Egypt on second um, of July, seventeen ninety eight, um, captured Alexandria, uh, moved towards Cairo, um, and encounter the, uh, the 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 Mamelukes mm. who ran Egypt on behalf of the uh, the Ottoman Empire, who were the um, the real overlords of Egypt. Um, and uh, this is at the on the twenty first of July, uh, the French forces fight the Mamluks at the so-called Battle of the Pyramids mm. um, and, and win a great victory and essentially take charge of Egypt. Uh, but this doesn't last for long no. um, because uh, 1st and 2nd of August, there is the Battle of the Nile, or the mm. Battle of Abakir Bay, which is a naval engagement when the British fleet have caught up um, and, and Nelson is in command and basically they destroy the French fleet in Abakir Bay uh, and the French army is marooned. Mm. Uh, in in Egypt, um, so they have to make the best of it. Yes. Um, so after basing themselves in Cairo, um, the French then decide to push on into Syria, mm. um, which is uh, in um, 1799. That's a bit of a disaster. They win the odd victory here and there, but they're beset by plague and loss of men on a huge scale, uh, and uh, are forced to go back into Egypt. 
by this time, things are going badly in Europe for France, as well as the formation of the the second coalition mm. with Britain, Austria, Russia. Bonaparte is beginning to get itchy feet mm. uh, and basically, and not for the first time in his life, abandons his army <laughs> yes. to go back to Europe, uh, leaving General Kleber in command. Uh, Kleber's a competent commander, um, wins and fights the Battle of Heliopolis um, against the Turks and the British but is then assassinated by, by an Islamic fanatic yes, um, yeah. and replaced by General Menou, who isn't quite the man that Kleber was. Yeah. And it's the beginning of the end in, in Egypt for the, for the French. The, the British reinvade in a force led by General Abercrombie. Um, and by August, the French have lost Egypt. Yeah. But news is slowing getting back to Europe of, of this defeat. And this is where... The Foreign Office romance begins. And into this uh, febrile political moment, uh, Conan Doyle throws in this fictional character of uh, Alphonse Lecour. And Lecour, um, well, it's interesting to muse on where Conan Doyle gets the name Lecour from. I mean, obviously, there's the uh, the heart, uh, which very much sort of symbolises what uh, Lecour and indeed Gerard would be um, in comparison to somebody like Sherlock Holmes, who's much more of the brain. But also, I, I do wonder if the name Lacour comes from uh, the fantastically named Coco Lacour, who was the uh, uh, successor of um, Eugène-Francois Vidocq at uh, the Sûreté. Um, uh, you know, Vidocq was regarded as the sort of father of modern criminology and, of course, was um, working uh, at the time of uh, Napoleon, was uh, uh, set up the Sûreté around 1811. And his work inspired people like um, Victor Hugo and Balzac and also um, Edgar Allan Poe. And there's a reference to Vidocq in uh, The Murders of the Rue Morgue, where uh, it said, Vidocq was a good guesser and a persevering man, but without educated thought, he erred continually by the very intensity of his investigations, which um, you then get in a study in scholar, you get uh, Lecoq, who is a miserable bungler, who's a mixture of both uh, Vidocq and um, Vidocq's successor, Coco Lecour. So I, I wonder if Lecour comes perhaps from, uh, uh, is a is a callback to that uh, that possible source. Um, but you were also thinking, Paul, that um, on the nature of Lecour and, and, and who this character might be, because he's uh, he's not your ordinary spy, is he? No, this is the uh, the thing about this character is is he does have this 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 heart and this this um, Gallic impetuousness yeah. about him, um, but he is also presented as as a bit of an intellectual. Um, he, he's he's someone who who gives us the idea he would have stayed out in Egypt, but once Kleber is assassinated and and Menu takes over, um, Lacour is very dismissive. Mm. Um, L Lacour, while he's out in Egypt, has, has been working on a translation of the Quran. Yeah. Um, and takes himself very seriously on this issue. Um, and um, has thought of converting to Islam. Um, and he, he likes the Islamic attitude towards wives, <laughs> but dislikes the Islamic <laughs> attitude towards <laughs> wine. <Yes. laughs> um, and he might have had disagreements with 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 Menou on this front as well, because Menou was the only French general who actually converted uh, to Islam. Oh, really? Um, during the Egyptian campaign, uh, and actually added to his birth names the name Abdallah. Wow! Um, when he converted, um, so you know, perhaps there's a little bit of yeah 
thing going on here with Lacour where he's he's actually a little bit jealous that that Manu had the courage. Yes. To 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 go the the full hog, but he, <laughs> he is right that the Manu wasn't uh, wasn't a usually capable individual. This again brings up the question with with about the savants and and mm. scholars that that Napoleon took with him. Was Lacour one of these? Mm. Um, uh, who, who then found a role in the diplomatic corps? Uh, we we get nothing on his background from from this front. Um, he could have been a career diplomat. He could even have been a soldier because a number of of, of great Napoleonic soldiers also doubled as 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 diplomats. Mm. Um, so he he is this very interesting mix, mixture. Um, and unlike Gerard, there's a brain there. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And you you um you get that even with his sort of tall tales at the beginning there's a sense in which this isn't a, a sort of idle fantasist i don't think i think this is someone who's toying mm. with his audience mm. that lovely sequence at the beginning where he talks about Talleyrand and the five oyster shells <laughs> or napoleon's second visit to ajaxio are all um they have that feeling of sort of sherlock holmes's lost cases the mm. The, mm. the things that get occasionally dropped into the sherlock holmes canon and we all delight in um, I did try to look into some of these tall tales. The best I could find was a, was a fantastic story about Talleyrand winning a bet with the uh, Duke of Laval, where the forfeit was that the loser should pay for an oyster breakfast for himself and the winner, uh, and also for 10 guests of um, the winner's uh, choice. And uh, Talleyrand, rather than inviting just 10 friends of his, decided to put out a public appeal for the 10 best oyster eaters in Paris so that when the Duke of Laval got the bill, he had to pay for over 7,000 oysters. So that's a, that's a pretty cunning piece of work on his part. But you also get that, that lovely thing about the second Napoleon's second visit to Ajaxio, the idea that he goes back to his birthplace. I mean, that's an interesting period of time in, in Napoleon's life because that's exactly the point at which he was, well, he was a Corsican nationalist at the time and then... Mm. Um, becomes won over to the cause of the revolution around then. So you can imagine a tall tale set then. And mm. then this wonderful one about the emperor's escape from Santelina. There were hundreds of rumours of um, Napoleon escaping, including ones that had been accidentally promoted by members of his own staff at, at Longwood, including uh, the great story of uh, General Gogot, who... Uh, accidentally let slip that the emperor might have been pretending to feign illness with the help of his Irish surgeon. Of course, the British would have got very agitated at the notion that an Irish surgeon would have been helping Napoleon off the island. Um, but yes, you get... But these feel like they're a bit more sort of like, in, you know, little intellectual teasers as opposed to him. Uh, it's, it's again, compared to, to, to Gerard, the, this, this difference uh, in that you get from Lacour, I know things. Yes. Whereas Gerard just wants to tell an adventure story. Absolutely. Yes. Mm. Yes. It's insights into his mind. And I think it's interesting that Conan Doyle um, brings in this point about Lacour being a, a Quran scholar. It makes perfect sense in the context of him having been in, in Egypt with uh, Napoleon. Conan Doyle does go on to write in later years a short story called The Red Star mm. uh, in 1911 about a, a Westerner being saved from uh, essentially being uh, attacked uh, in the desert by um, meeting the Prophet Muhammad's um, uh, caravan and, uh, and then having a dinner with the Prophet uh, where you get a strong sense of, um, I think, um, I don't know how you put it, a sort of grudging respect but certainly an admiration for the intent while also signaling a kind of um, rather ill-defined fear of the other. 
And, and Napoleon himself was an admirer of Islam. He thought it was a, a very good religion for a soldier, um, with its its the sort of the fatalism mm. aspect, um, that that sort of outlook. And he just he admired the um, the, the, the the martial ardor of the the soldiers who he encountered in Egypt. And and later on, he would he would actually have two Mameluk servants himself. Mm. Um, and a, a unit of the uh, the Imperial Guard, um, which was was made up of, of Mamluks, who were one of the uh, the most renowned uh, of, of its its cavalry units. Mm. And the fictional character of Lacour does pull off uh, this uh, amazing diplomatic feat, which was genuinely pulled off, which was that mm. the French had news of the loss of Egypt before the British did, and in fact, mm. uh, famously. Lord Hawkesbury signed the uh, preliminaries of Amiens on the 1st of October and a, mass- a messenger arrived with the news of the capture of Egypt on the mm. 2nd of October. Mm. In, in, in practice, there's an interesting question there about how much it really mattered because both countries were so keen on making a, a, a peace. And when the preliminaries were signed, there was a great celebration across London mm. in particular um, and in fact, when a few days later, Napoleon's aide-de-camp arrived with the official signed documents, uh, his, mm. um, his carriage was mobbed and uh, the horses were taken off the carriage and the people pulled the carriage through <laughs> most of central London. But it was nevertheless an enormous diplomatic coup for the French to get the result that they got out of the preliminaries. And that was really to do with the, the, the balance of international power and particularly around colonial possessions. And the three colonial possessions that were really critical in in the negotiations were Egypt, Malta, and the Cape of Good Hope, and all three get referenced within this story. Yes, the importance of of all three of these, ultimately, to the British, um, lies with India. Yeah. Um, As as already explained, Egypt is seen as a possible kind of launching point um, for an overland invasion, we have to remember this is this is way before the building of the Suez Canal. Yeah, and the same goes for the the Cape of Good Hope. Around the Cape of Good Hope was the main sea route to India. Who controlled the Cape could control the sea route to mm-hmm. India. Um, so this is this is hugely important to uh, to the British um, that they retain some degree of foothold at, at the very least um, on the on the Cape of Good Hope and and. Despite these agreements in in the uh, the Peace of Amiens, the British actually did take the Cape back in 1806, mm. um, and that was formalised in in 1814 with the Peace of Paris. Um, and and Malta, again, as as uh, I've already explained as well, was was lay, lay central to the uh, the Mediterranean Sea, um, and so was was um, was hugely important to um, to the British in naval terms. Mm. Um, as well, uh, I mean, you have to think uh, about the, the the realistic threat to India. Um, mm. The French had been our main rival in the 18th century, and they still had a certain degree of foothold. But by this time, uh, the British are becoming so well established; it would have been difficult for the French to take it over. Yeah, um, and th- there is this this kind of sneaky sort of agreement Napoleon tries in 1800 with the Russians. Yes. Um, to, to, to kind of how about a Franco-Russian invasion of India, um, which is very cheeky because this is the time when the Russians are still supposed to be in the second coalition against <laughs> France. Absolutely. Um, but 
this might also reflect concerns of when, when Conan Doyle was writing the story. Yeah, of course. Um, in the 1890s, the, the, the great game, the so-called great game between Russia and Britain over the northwest frontier and, and, and Afghanistan, mm. um, the gateway to India, was still very much alive. Um, and th- there were worries, a- again, alluding back to the, um, the, the, the diplomatic problems between France and, and, and Britain in the 1890s, that the French could be colluding with the Russians on this. And, and this, this comes across in, in one of the most famous uh, pieces of fiction, um, Rudyard Kipling's Kim, which is yes. written six, six or seven years after uh, Foreign Office Romance, where, where the, um, the, the spies who Kim is, is out to track are a mix of, of French and, and Russian agents. Mm. And it's funny you should mention Cape of Good Hope in this because the um, French diplomatist in a foreign office romance is uh, Louis-Guillaume Otto, who was a German-French diplomat who studied modern languages and was in uh, North America at the time of the signing of the US Constitution and wrote um, wrote his uh, account of... uh, the uh, the negotiations around that, which is still studied to this day, he didn't actually write memoirs for um, the later period of his life that covers this period. But he may well have had a reputation of being a slightly sneaky customer. Uh, in that, uh, in early eighteen o one, he'd secured uh, passports from the British Admiralty for French discovery ships to go to New Holland, what we what's now called Australia. And um, uh, there was a lot of criticism in the Quarterly Review one of the principal organs of the establishment at the time, that these passports had been obtained under false pretenses and that actually the discovery ships were intent on scoping Australia as a potential military uh, establishment. And while we're on the subject of uh, underhand means, there's an interesting aspect to this story that it could be seen as a prototype spy story. I mean, the spy genre was uh, emerging in the 1890s, really cemented with um, Erskine Childers' the, the Riddle of the Sands in 1903. But Conan Doyle had already sort of experimented with ideas around um, spies and diplomatic incidents with things like, uh, well, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, you've got his diplomatic stories, then the Naval Treaty, the Second Stain, and you've got the Bruce Parting plans much later. Um, but uh, in, in wider fiction, you have uh, LeCue's work, uh, The Great War in England, in 1897, which came out in 1894 in Answers, uh, in which a spy uses his friendship with a Foreign Office member of staff to gain access to a secret treaty, something very similar to the Naval Treaty. And uh, you've also got Lecuse's um, uh, The Secrets of the Foreign Office in 1903, uh, which came out just before um, the Second Stain. And, you know, there, there was a great deal of interest, particularly post-1900, in the threat of, uh, of um, spies on British soil, but espionage was uh, very much a, a topic of the day around the time that um, Conan Doyle was writing uh, a foreign office romance in that the, the Dreyfus affair was starting to kick off in France, which has elements of uh, um, not only espionage, but also treason and anti-Semitism became this massively important political incident in France that Conan Doyle watched very, very closely. And uh, also in this mode, you get things like uh, Baroness Orcsey's The Scarlet Pimpernel, uh, another sort of espionage tale, but uh, this time of a, a British agent operating on French soil, which came out in, in 1905. So, you know, it's interesting to put uh, a foreign office romance into the context of those early spy stories in which uh, you know, this, this could be seen as one of those, those cases. 
And, and again, it's it's one where you, you wonder if he was thinking of of turning Lacour into a into a serious character. Mm. Um, and this this again with the, with the whole spy genre, you 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 have got as you say with 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 Lacour and and people like him writing these novels. Um, but in in 1900, in in Pearson's magazine. Uh, Fred M. White uh, wrote a series entitled The Romance of the Secret Service Fund, which had a continual series character, Newton Moore, the famous Secret Service agent, who is taking the kind of the, 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 the Sherlock Holmes model of a series character and putting him in a different adventure in mm. each issue um, and moving it into that sort of world. And, and obviously, Orcsy did this with, with, with novels, with mm. the Scarlet Pimpernel and a whole series. Um, and later on, you got and, and presumably very inspired by um, by Orcsy and the Scarlet Pimpernel was it was Dennis Wheatley um, from the yeah. 1950s to the 1970s did his series of of Revolutionary War Napoleonic yes. uh, spy diplomatic stories with 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 Roger Brooke. Yeah, and Newton Moore setting up the tradition of detectives mm. and spies that sound like train stations. Mm-mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really like about this story is the uh, is how rooted it is in Regency, in the Regency period as well. I mean, it's a we know Conan Doyle was fascinated by this period, and this is really his first foray into writing um, characters and uh, and his setting. As much as he was thinking about um, the play that would become the novel that would become the play <laughs> that is Rodney Stone and, and uh, the House of Temperley. But you know, aside from those. He uh, he wrote uh, how the brigadier, uh, how the king held the brigadier, uh, the brigadier in England, both of which are set around about uh, eighteen ten. Um, he writes a, a, a tale, an impression of the Regency in nineteen hundred, which is um, which is a much more a sort of character piece on the, the Prince Regent himself. And then right at the end of his life, he wrote a, a, a lovely short story called The End of Devil Hawker, which is about a clubland scandal. When you get those Regency clubs written into a foreign office romance. There's the wonderful moment where Lacour is um, concerned that the British may have got news of what has happened in Egypt. And so he goes to all of the, the hot spots to hear if there is any gossip on the, on the ground. And uh, he says, uh, I set forth, therefore, towards evening. Uh, I wandered here and wandered there. I was in the fencing rooms of Monsieur Angelo and in the salon de box of uh, Monsieur Jackson and in the club of Brooks and in the lobby of the Chamber of Deputies, but nowhere did I hear any news. And those are all genuine places. The fencing rooms of Monsieur Angelo is a reference to the Angelo's School of Arms, which was a fencing school set up in Soho, um, actually set up by uh, Domenico Angelo in 1758, who wrote a sort of key textbook on, on the art of fencing, but by this time had been taken over by his son, Henry Angelo, who had turned it into a kind of club for the fancy, for the uh, for the gentlemen of the day who were keen on um, uh, betting and boxing. And um, Angelo had uh, created this kind of club-like atmosphere for his his uh, venue in Soho. And gentlemen could pay a subscription and they could um, uh, attend and witness uh, um, fights, but they could also uh, take part themselves and um, fight against some of the uh, professional swordsmen of the day. You also had uh, uh, the reference there to Monsieur Jackson, that's John Jackson, the former um, 
uh, bare knuckle boxing champion of England in 1795, who set up a boxing academy, uh, 13 Bond Street in the West End. Actually, um, Angelo's later moved and had a, another venue next door to it uh, as well. Actually, Jackson's boxing club was set up a little later than this story is set. It's set up in 1803, but one of its principal customers was Lord Byron, who apparently took boxing lessons from John Jackson himself. But uh, John Jackson went on to form a fantastic organisation called the Pugilistic Club in 1814, which was a kind of forerunner of the Boxing Commission and would organise prize fights. And then you've got this reference to Brooks as well, and Brooks is this very ex- ex- uh, exclusive club at 49 Pall Mall. It's um, there to this day. It's one of the oldest of its kind, and it was set up originally by um, a group of sort of a group of Whigs who'd been kicked out of an even older and even more exclusive club called Whites. Um, and uh, uh, Brooks is famous now for its uh, its gambling book, in that uh, it had a, a a register where anybody could uh, record the bets that they laid with anybody else in, in, in any other members. Um, and there was a fantastic article. I'll put a link in the show notes to. Um, I think it was an American historian, had gone through this um, gambling book and looked at all of the sort of obscure and bizarre things that people had bet on, uh, some of which are, are rather more like dares than anything else. But there's Sir G. Webster gives Lord Derby one guinea to receive 100 guineas when Lord Derby goes up in a balloon 100 yards from the surface of the earth. That was 1783. Or uh, Mr. Boothby gave Mr. Faulkner five guineas to receive 100 if the Duke of Queensbury dies before half an hour after five in the afternoon on the 20th of, 27th of June, 1773. And that was bet on June the 27th, 1772. Brooks has got quite the reputation for being a gambling place. But the other one that gets referenced in here is Watier's, which is a, a club set up in, in Bruton Street. It was actually formed by the Prince Regent uh, when members of his circle started to complain about the quality of the food in London clubs. So he brought in his uh, private cook and asked him if he would set up a, a dinner club, and that cook was called uh, Wattier, and that's how the uh, club came about. But the, the most famous um, chairman of the club was Beau Brummel, the famous dandy, who also appears in, uh, in Conan Doyle's Rodney Stone, who was uh, named the club president at the Prince's behest, but also ran into enormous problems at the card tables and virtually, virtually bankrupted himself. Um, what is itself was also a bit later than the story is set and it didn't last all that <laughs> long because so many people uh, found themselves ruined uh, as a result of doing it but what is get ref- gets referenced in many of those stories I mentioned before and actually the House of Templey the first scene of the fourth act is set in the committee room at, at, at what is so Conan Doyle really playing with his knowledge and insight into the Regency um, period and giving us a real sense of that kind of uh, London club land and the echelons of society in which the the fancy would have um, uh, entertained themselves. I, I particularly love the fact that that Lacour refers to the lobby of the House of Commons as the lobby of the Chamber of Deputies. It's a <laughs> yes. lovely little French touch that again shows how on the ball Conan Doyle was with 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 matters like this mm. um and uh, the, the location itself you know, 11 years after lacour was there this was where the british prime minister spencer percival was shot dead yes um by an angry businessman yes. um but he was replaced by lord liverpool 
who had early been Lord Hawkesbury, who is the uh, chief British negotiator yeah. in, in Foreign Office Romance. And uh, Hawkesbury would then serve from 1812 to 1827, which is still the longest serving British Prime Minister. And this great diplomatic coup takes place uh, supposedly at Lord Hawkesbury's house on Harley Street. But uh, as far as we're aware, Lord Hawkesbury um, d- didn't have a uh, did never live on the street. Um, Condor might well have been getting mixed up with um, Wellington, whose first uh, residence in the in the capital was on Harley Street uh, before he ultimately got the best address in London, Number One London, uh, which is Apsley House. Well, I, I was uh, as as I was reading, I was wondering if it, it perhaps also might be here, Conan Doyle making some sort of oblique reference to his previous profession of of, of doctor. Mm-hmm. When uh, when Lacour says of it. It is not a cheering place, Monsieur. That street of Harley. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> and I, I, I've often wondered about why Conan Doyle was uh, so fascinated in this period. I mean, he he did set himself the task of becoming uh, the romantic novelist of, of this period in the way that uh, Sir Walter Scott was known for for earlier periods. And we don't really, I don't suppose Rodney Stone really gives us the full flavour of the Regency period as much as it set then a lot of it's in sort of small England and then you get glimpses of London um, and then you get the boxing the boxing match you never get really into clubland um, but I do wonder if the, the the great appetite he had for this period was that it was a, a decadent period and he himself was living through uh, uh, when he was writing this story in particular he was re- living through another period of great decadence and what sort of connects those two eras yeah, it's, it's this classic uh, end of century stuff. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so you, you've got at the, the the end of the 18th century, the the, the French Revolution, the, the the revolutionary Napoleonic Wars, um, together with the birth of the the Romantic movement yeah. in the arts, um, and then in the, the the later 19th century, you've got the the world almost <laughs> waiting for the First World War. Yes, to happen. Yeah, this, this international tension is building. Um, and 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 the 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 artistic movements of this time is, are seen, uh, you know, the, 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 as as decadent um, to to many commentators. And you, you've got uh, Conan Doyle is moving in London in the eighteen nineties in the same or similar sort of worlds as as the the eighteen nineties dandies and aesthetes, the mm. uh, the the group who are associated with with people like Oscar Wilde and Aubrey Beardsley. Um, Doyle wasn't directly associated with them. He he knew Wilde and 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 mm. rather liked and admired Wilde, um, but the the actual he, Doyle himself preferred to hang about with 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 more you know hearty sort of writers, sporty uh, types, uh, sporty types. And this is the difference between the, the the late 18th century dandies that he likes to write about in these stories. They they were artistic, but they're also the 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 part of the you know as you say the fancy yeah um these they're, they're athletic sporty types they're hearties yes um, whereas as as the the 1890s aesthetes deliberately rejected that sort of that sort of world hmm. um but it, it is interesting i've also been reading rodney stone that the um the character of charles tregellis hmm is 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 actually there's something of of, of Oscar Wilde about him, um, in in physically and in his character. But he's he's kind of Oscar Wilde with a with a with a with a touch for the um for the world of the hearties as well. Yes, yeah, and mm. I think you get when Conan Doyle does revisit this in 
in uh, at other times it's often around the, the boxing boxing stories as well it's much more around um sport and indeed gambling i mean that's the other thing that i think conan Doyle really latches onto here is uh, is gambling it's interesting that liqueur should use the ruse of a of a bet to get the uh the british messenger into the cab mm. and to keep him there which is a uh, you know, obviously, in in the uh, in the next Gerard tell we get, mm. uh, um, it it's all settled on on a bet as well, and uh, it's a running theme that uh, Gerard will comment on the uh, British obsession with mm. with sport over even getting their armies in fit condition. Mm. Um, How to go to the heart of an English gentleman? Indeed, absolutely. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of a Foreign Office romance and to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to find out more, you can read the show notes at doingsofdoyle.com. And if you've liked the podcast, please leave us a rating or, or review on your podcaster of choice or consider sponsoring us at patreon.com forward slash doingsofdoyle. And what have we got on the uh, show next time, Paul? Next time, we go right back to the beginning of uh, Conan Doyle's career and look at his first published story, The Mystery of Sasa Valley, which appeared in Chambers's journal for September 1879. Yeah. So back to the origins. Wonderful. Looking forward to that one. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Hawkesbury would then serve from 1812 to 1827, which is still the longest serving British Prime Minister. Yes, and Mm. still regarded as one of the... (laughs) Least impressive. Yes. Never, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> He's got competition. Um... <laughs>